Have you ever used a word or perhaps words and you didn't know what they meant? You say something and if truth be told, you have no idea exactly what you're saying, but it sure sounded good. When my son Caleb was a very young boy, Dana dropped him off at piano lessons. The teacher lived in the backwoods, really backwoods, of Lookout Mountain, about five miles or so from our house. When Dana went to pick up Caleb 30 minutes or so later, she came across a car accident, and it just so happened to be Caleb's piano teacher. Dana asked her if she was okay, and she was, and then asked, where's Caleb? She said... I have no idea. I haven't been home. So Dana went back to the teacher's house, which was locked, of course, and no Caleb. Again, he's a very little boy, and so the search started for hours. No Caleb. Police were looking, all of us were looking, and we simply couldn't find him. They were getting ready to call in the helicopters as the fog began rolling in on the mountain, and one of the police officers very wisely asked Dana to call home just in case. Now, there is no way we thought he could have made it home. It was too far away. Again, really backwoods, almost scary stuff to walk on these roads. He would never, at that young of an age, venture the journey alone. But sure enough, he answered the phone. Hello, this is Caleb. He told us the story of the frightening trip back to the house and how he was attacked by stray animals. He told us about all the big, scary dogs and told us quite confidently that he was inhaling dogs all the way home. I said, you were inhaling dogs. I promise, Dad. I promise. I was inhaling dogs all the way home. He was quite convinced until I told him what inhaling meant. Then he realized he has never inhaled a dog. Now I realize there is all kinds of Christian lingo that we might use that if push comes to shove, we might not really know what we're saying, even if we sound very confident. If I ask you, how many persons are there in the Godhead? You would probably have no issues with the correct answer. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And of course that is correct. And if I began to drill down, well, who is the Father? You could speak about God the Father for for quite a while, I would guess, and even longer, perhaps, if you and I began talking about God the Son. But what do you suppose happens when we get to God the Holy Spirit? You would certainly have something to say, I'm sure, but probably not as much. And if we pressed, you would begin to realize that you know a lot less about him In fact, much past doxology or doxological praise in church, we don't think that much of the Holy Spirit at all. Now, we use the words Holy Spirit, but do we know what we're talking about? As Christians, we say the Spirit of God indwells us, lives in us. We might even use Paul's word here in our text and say that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but I have a question. And with all due respect, so what? I am serious. What difference does any of that make? You have God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is incomprehensible, 
who never had a beginning and never will have an end, the one who spoke the galaxies into existence, who made this beautiful world with just a word, who knows all things, who sees all things, and who has a purpose that nothing and no one can thwart. You have this one living, dwelling inside of you? God. God in you. Just think about what it is we are saying. Being candid, I have to wonder how, how it is that I can have the spirit of the living and eternal God living inside of me. And this is all I am? It seems that Paul's point here is pretty clear. The Corinthian Christians have been saved by the grace of God, by the cross of Jesus Christ, by the illuminating, renewing, recreating work of the Holy Spirit within them. Blind to the truth about themselves, about God and salvation, the Holy Spirit used Paul's preaching to open their minds and their hearts to the truth and to draw them to Christ and to salvation. They had lived in complete and utter darkness, following the wisdom of this world and the desires of their own sinful hearts. But now, now they have been delivered from that darkness into light by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how is it then that they could be found returning to thinking and behaving as if none of that were true? As if they had not been granted God's wisdom? As if the world's way had not been exposed as a complete fraud? And as if their past sinful choices were still in some way an option for them? His whole argument it reduces to this. You have been given this precious, precious gift and you are flittering it away. You are returning to a futile way of thinking like a dog returns to its vomit. Do not think you can build the world's house on Christ's foundation. No. Nor can you build Christ's house on the world's foundation. The foundation and the house must go together. Christ must be the beginnings and the continuation of our lives, if in fact we are His. And here's what I want us to consider this morning. And by that, I, I, mean, I mean this seriously. Every one of us, just set everything aside and just think about this. The third person of Almighty God lives in us and among us. God's powerful presence is with us immediately and directly. Surely this is to make a difference. More of a difference in our lives than it is currently making. Paul speaks of the one in whom the Spirit of God dwells as a temple. A temple, the temple, was the place where God's presence was found and where it was expected to be found. The temple was smack dab in the center of the city and everything revolved around it. You could not go into the city and ignore or be unaware of the temple. It was that stark. It sat over all of life and everything in the city and everyone knew where it was, what it was, and why it was there. And Paul says that 
is you. That is me. But is it? Is it really? I know I've already said this, but the, the re- repetition is purposed. Just because I'm, I'm dumbfounded, and I'm dumbfounded with myself, how is it that we can live and act as if the Spirit were not present? As if we were not His temple? As if He did not live in us and among us? How can that be? How can we have God in us and it not be utterly obvious that it is so? And again, being candid, I'm not sure how to answer the question. The Holy Spirit is in us and with us, and yet, in God's mysterious wisdom, we are free to grieve Him. We are free to disobey Him, to rebel against Him, and to do so to such an extent that to make His influences virtually invisible to anyone else, and sadly, even to ourselves. To live by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, as Paul says, does not mean simply to have the Spirit in you. It means to walk in obedience to the Spirit, to direct our lives according to the reality of God the Spirit's presence in us. And how is that to be done? (laughs) I cannot answer that question either, at least not comprehensively. But let me see if I can at least get us thinking as we make a beginning. First, I want you to look at the passage. I know it's a bit confusing in your liturgy this morning from John 14 and Acts 5. John 14 we read, Acts 5 is printed there for you. Acts 5 says that the Lord gives the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, to those who obey Him. Jesus says the same thing, in essence, in John 14. Obedience is said to be the cause of the Spirit to be given. Now you can obviously see how this messes up the more systematic type of folks, as if our obedience comes before the Spirit. But the meaning isn't really all that confusing. Our obedience to the Lord is the work of grace. But here is the point. When we obey the Lord, that obedience begets more obedience. When we obey the Spirit's voice that voice gets louder and more pronounced. We become more accustomed to discerning it. To obey will bring about a heightened desire for the things of the Lord, a greater ability, and a greater willingness to listen to what the Holy Spirit desires. This is so easy to prove, especially if we look at the opposite. No one in this room doubts that sin begets more sin. That sin is not static, it's dynamic that if it isn't stopped, it will continue to grow. Where did King David's fall begin? It began with irresponsibility. In the spring when kings go off to war, and he was not off to war, he wasn't where he should have been. It begins with irresponsibility, and where does it end? With murder. Well, the same is true for righteousness. If you want to hear the Spirit more acutely, if, if we really want to walk in step with the Spirit of God, then set yourself to obedience to His Word. But I don't, I don't hear the Spirit of God in me. Well then, repent of your disobedience and obey Him. To strengthen the point, if you look at the text we read from Ephesians 4 about grieving the Spirit, which is a quote from Isaiah 63, which is why we read both texts this morning. In that context, we grieve the Spirit by sinful and ungodly behavior. 
conditions of the heart. And if you notice in the list that's given, there is nothing of what we would say is of a heinous nature. There's no mention of adultery. There's no mention of murder or something of that ilk, which definitely grieved the Spirit. But what kinds of things does he say? See if you find yourself in this list. Lying, anger, stealing, corrupt words that hurt people, bitterness, slander, refusing to be tender-hearted, not forgiving as you have been forgiven. You'll find the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5 with regard to quenching the Spirit. We have to look at ourselves very clearly. We have to see our sin square in the face and deal with it at the cross. And before you simply nod your heads in agreement with such an obvious statement, you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself, why am I not doing that? Why are you doing just the opposite? We fan our anger. We feed our bitterness. We withhold love. Our words are arrows that bring pain. And we don't forgive as we have been forgiven. And then we wonder why we can't discern the Spirit's voice. The Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 is called the Spirit of Truth. There is the sense that He leads us in the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But as we spoke about last Sunday morning, it also, and maybe even more importantly, leads us into the truth about ourselves. Do you remember what Jesus says about secrets? Maybe we don't hear the Spirit. Maybe we grieve the Spirit because we're not walking in truth with regard to our secrets. We forget, easily forget, that nothing is hidden that will not come into the light. You know very well that you have secrets. There are things you would be absolutely mortified for others to know about you. And to be sure, we can be grateful to God that some things are kept secret. He shows us great kindness by not exposing all our secrets. But we should never imagine that they will always and forever remain unknown. God knows them all, and he promises he will bring them into the light. How they are disclosed and to whom the Lord does not say, but that they will be uncovered, he assures us and he warns us. And please listen carefully to this. You must never ever base your hope for the future, your future, Never base your hope for the future on the possibility of keeping your secrets secret. Salvation requires that even your secret sins be forgiven. Our secrets remind us that we need forgiveness more than anything else. The Lord has shown you a way to receive the forgiveness of sins, including all of the sins you know about and no one else does. He has brought that that reality of full and free forgiveness right into the light. But it will do you no good if you do not live in that light, if you do not live in that truth. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. We will not hear Him. We will not walk with Him. I would even say we will not really know Him if we are busy trying to or thinking that we can hide from Him. The truth about it 
ourselves. The whole truth. Please trust him on this. And I don't mean to put anyone on the spot, but I'll bet you can ask any of these brothers sitting off to my right about what happens when you try to keep secrets and you don't confess them to the Lord. And I bet you can ask them what happens when you say no more. No more secrets. Full confession. They could speak well to you of the freedom that is in Christ because you're done hiding. You're done running. Ask them. They will tell you gladly. I guarantee it. But I trust you already know this. Paul goes on in our text to call the temple, the temple that we are, holy. Now you all know very well what the word means in Hebrew and Greek. To be separate. To be set apart. The temple was not... The temple was not a gymnacafatorium. It was not used for any and every mundane thing. It was set apart for the Lord and only for the Lord. So the Spirit of God says that you are now set apart like the temple. Not for mundane worldly use. You are to be the Lord's vessel in your mind, your heart, your home, your job, at school, and everything for the purpose of God's glory. Period. You are not like everyone else. If the Spirit of God is in you, how could you be like everyone else? We are distinct and different. And we must reflect the nature and character of our holy God. And that is exactly what the Corinthians were not doing. But the Holy Spirit in and with us makes that wonderful and mighty thing an actual possibility. Just as no one can be good without God, no one can be holy without the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's grand mission in the Christian's life, in your life, my life, to transform us into this, a holy temple, a holy dwelling for the Lord. Had the Spirit not come to you, you would never, you would never have come to see and acknowledge your sin and guilt before God. You'd have never humbled yourself, begging Him for forgiveness. That, that's holiness. Hear what the Spirit says to you. Child of God, you are to aspire to nothing as much as you do to mortify your sins, to put on righteousness and purity that is pleasing to your Father in heaven. However, we are called upon not to sit around waiting to get zapped from heaven. That is not the way the Spirit works. Rather, we are to walk in the Spirit, practice this holiness, seek it, study it, love it, and to see holiness more and more become the characteristic of our lives as we listen to the Spirit of God discerning His voice. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, for it is God who is in you, he continues. What's he saying? The Spirit of God indwells you. Now act like it, live like it, think like it, and may I even say love like it. Let's just take one example. Our call to forgive as God forgives. Holy Spirit is the spirit of forgiveness. He has planted the seed of forgiveness and love in our hearts by that work, His work in us. Now, it is for you not simply to, to labor to love and forgive from your hearts as you have been forgiven, but to also remain true to the Lord in thought, speech, and behavior. To struggle with all of your thoughts, your words, and your deeds from, from that which is unkind and unforgiving. And what a struggle that is. What courage, what strength, what perseverance it requires for us to keep our hearts this way. 
But there is still more to ponder what it means to love and be loved, to live in and by forgiveness, as the Holy Spirit teaches it to you in His Word. We do this until we're changed by it, until you desire, until you hunger and thirst for it. That is, that is what it means to practice the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is what it means to walk in the Spirit, to love and to practice that which pleases Him. I think it is important as we begin our contemplation to conclude with a reminder that the Spirit of God is also called the Spirit of power. Paul actually refers to this in this same letter back in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is able. It is the Spirit that makes good things happen in people's lives. By His sovereign and divine power, He changes, he changes what otherwise could never be changed. Just take a second and be reminded of what He's done in you. Look at what He has changed in you. What you see now that you didn't see before. What is certain to you in the love of Christ that you didn't know before, or perhaps you seriously doubted. The Holy Spirit has made you a new creation with the same power that He created the world at the beginning. And through the same power, He continues to renew you into the image of the Savior. He will do this good work that He has begun. He promises to continue it until the day of Jesus and His return. He will do it. He didn't farm it off to some underling. He didn't slough it off even to a perfect angel. No, He has come to you Himself in and by His Spirit to make sure the job gets done. A 19th century pastor once said this, The Holy Spirit is the only one who can kill us and keep us dead. That's true. But in the same way, only the Holy Spirit can lift us up and make us feel the freedom and the peace and the joy of our forgiveness in Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can make us love Christ with the passion that He deserves to be loved. Only the Spirit can nerve and steel us to resist the devil and to put our sins to death. And only the Holy Spirit of God can sustain us in our trials and our sorrows. Only the Spirit of God can take our sorrows and make them a means of grace to help us love Him more. Otherwise, sin will exploit us to harden our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can keep us from puffing up with pride when we succeed and becoming worldly if we should prosper. All of this takes the Holy Spirit and His powerful working. And so, you and I must always always be seeking to walk in the Spirit, to live out of His power, that we might live in victory, not only at the end of the age, but hundreds of times every day. The Apostle John tells us at the beginning of the book of the Revelation that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Spirit, he was taken up to heaven to participate in the divine worship of God taking place without end before the throne of God and the Lamb. And there in the Spirit, he is told, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Spirit says, Blessed 
are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is but a foretaste of that. It's a pointer to that. But I want to ask you, can you see it? Not this. Can you see it? Can you smell it? Can you even begin to feel the wonder and the joy of that great day? And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, no, no, Pastor, I can't. Then I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to be quiet for just a second. I want you to still your heart and I just want you to pray with me. O Holy Spirit of God, open the eyes of my face. Help me to see what cannot be seen. O Spirit of holiness and joy, help me. Help me now that I might get a glimpse, just a foretaste of what is mine in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, the Word of God says it is your purpose to glorify Jesus, to show me Jesus. O living Spirit, I would see Him. I would be fed by Him. I would now taste and see that the Lord is good. Please, Spirit of the living God, give me this. For I am a child of God. He is my Father. Jesus is my elder brother. And you, Spirit, are my constant comforter and companion. Brother, sister, reach out, take hold. Take hold of Jesus. Eat and drink with God and be filled with the spirit of holiness. O gracious Father, set apart these very common and ordinary elements for this holy purpose. And if it be the case that all we see is bread and wine, if it be the case that we do not see past the elements, O Father, cause the scales to drop from our eyes, that we might see past the picture to the reality past the foretaste to the fullness and that we might know that it is our Christ, our Savior who is our food and drink. He is our life. And as we feast and celebrate we are reminded that as He has given Himself fully for us, we now in participation through the Eucharist give ourselves fully to You. Oh Father, do this great work through the power of Your Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name.